Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Episode 22. The body knows the score. August 9th, day five. Thank you, listeners of Blink of an Eye. People are tuning in from all over. Whether we listen in at the same time or from different time zones, we are creating an energy field together for our own healing. So sit back on this one. It's going to be a little longer. But anticipate some good things yourself. It won't be all easy, but we are on this journey together because we believe in trauma healing, right? We might not understand what happens to us, but we can believe in creating possibilities for healing for ourselves and others. <laughs> and we can't make up what happens to us in real life the richness that each of our experiences and our bodies give us for wisdom every day in the blink of an eye. It's there all along. So take a breath, settle your spirit, and here we go. And yes, life can change in the blink of an eye. August 9th. It was Sunday. Day of rest. Oh my God. It was hard to believe we were on day five. But oh, what a difference a day makes as yesterday was a good day for Archer. And last night was a good night. As I sat in Archer's room, I felt a little smile creep over my face thinking back on last night and our hero James Schmucker oh I forgot to tell you I went home with James oh I mean wait I mean I didn't go home with James but I drove home with James and it was kind of funny actually I mean I thought I was going with James back to Cape May but that's not exactly what happened. Here is what happened. So it was about 8.30 p.m. in Archer's hospital room when James and Archer ended their visit. Honestly, when Archer just conked out. I was in the hallway when James sort of peeked around Archer's curtain looking for me, telling me he thought Archer had fallen asleep. That did not surprise me, as I could only imagine what it took out of Archer, seeing his friend who had rescued him. 
My daughter Paula and Michael had arrived about an hour or so before. The plan was they'd go out for dinner, come back to the hospital, relieve me, and stay a couple hours with Archer until Billy got there. We were constantly planning logistics for every shift around the clock, and I wanted to take advantage of my big kids being able to come to New Jersey on the weekend. Because I was aware of a sort of low-level undercurrent of not tension exactly and not anxiety, but it was definitely a worry that was just sort of out there in the back of my mind, wondering about what we were going to do if Archer were here much longer. While I had waited for Archer and James to visit, Paula had called me to tell me she and Michael were on their way back. Plan was that I'd drive her car home to give me a little time with Billy, and then he'd come back at midnight to switch with them and they could drive Billy's car back then, and I'd return with it in the morning. We made a point to just leave keys under the mat or on the top of the driver's side tire of all the cars at this point, as it had gotten complicated. I asked Paula to text me where she had parked the car, and she hesitated, and she said, Ooh, I think it's the fourth level. I'm sorry, Mama. I'm not positive, but I know it's on the right as soon as you get off the elevator. It had only been four nights of trading, day and night shift, and we were still experimenting, but the garage was packed. And again, it wasn't anxiety exactly that I experienced, but I was feeling a low level of, I guess you'd call it worry that we wouldn't write down where the car was. And since it was I who had to be the driver home at night, I was anticipating that I'd have to walk all the floors of that huge garage for like an hour or more, whatever it would take looking for a car. I could sort of feel it in my gut. Oh, Louise, cut it out. You're just catastrophizing. I then stopped myself and said, and Paula and I agreed on the phone. We'd figure it out when we got there. <laughs> it felt good to hear Paula's positive outlook and to know she was back to her breezy self. You know how that is, right? When your child or anyone you love a lot is really not themselves for a while. You worry about them. And then... <laughs> Just the laugh you hear again. Oh, it is such sweetness to know they're back in the saddle or getting there. I bet you know exactly what I mean. It's also a relief. I paused and wondered, hmm, I think it might also be because Michael is here with her now. They were almost 25 years old and had been seeing each other a few months. I tell you, it seemed to me, I don't know, but it seemed to me they were falling in love. I noticed how Michael was really there for her in a way that was steady and calmed her 
was good for her. He was taking care of her just as she was, even zombified. And she seemed to be receptive to that. Mm. It was nice. It was just such a sweet moment for me to hear her laugh again. You know what I mean? And then we laughed together as we said, we'll figure it out when we get there. And that that would be our new mantra. Mm, we'll figure it out when we get there. Mm, we'll figure it out when we get there. <laughs> oh, that Paula. She's so sweet. My oldest child, my only daughter. I don't know how to describe it, but I could also feel that she was now really there with me, basically caring, but in a grown-up kind of way. Know what I mean? Like when you notice, oh my goodness, my child has grown up. She was truly a young adult. I felt this when she was most attentive to trying to help me create some time with Billy so he and I could be together. As I reflect on it now, we were all really caring for each other and being cared for at the same time. I think that was a real secret to this crazy unfolding and to where we are today. The reason Paula and Michael were on for archer duty tonight before midnight was so that I could go home early and see Billy. What needed some attention was us, and I knew it. Billy and I had had no time together since Archer's accident, and actually, I hadn't really seen or talked to Billy in days. I honestly had no idea what he was thinking or how he was really doing. All the kids I could observe when they came to see Archer, but Billy insisted on staying home when I was here, and I have no idea how he was with the others when he was at home or if he was even there. I just didn't know. Because when I was in Cape May, which was usually very late at night, often one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, he was already here at the hospital because we just passed like ships in the night, trading places. Yeah, it was getting a little crazy. Well, thank goodness we were totally on the same page, though, that we wanted one of us with Archer at all times. But I didn't understand why we both couldn't be with Archer at the same time, some of the time, and have the kids with Archer some of the time while we were together at home. I just didn't understand him now. But anytime I thought of it, I felt this sort of, I don't know, like acid reflux, kind of a burning in my throat. It was weird, but I did know a few things about Billy. He was a guy who needed a lot of physical space, often away from others, well, authority figures, and the hospital was full of them, 
I just didn't know. I could tell from our recent texts and phone calls, though, today, he was not doing too well. He was irritable and kind of short. I wondered if that's what Paula had noticed, too. I was worried about him. I didn't want to go too far from Archer's room while James was in there with him, so I stayed down the hospital hallway where I could answer texts and phone calls and still be available. Sure enough, James appeared at the curtain doorway, poking his head out, but he seemed a little urgent, saying Archer told him to get me, and I went right away. Yes, Archer needed his mouth suctioned. That is something the nurse would normally do, but Archer had no ability to call a nurse, and I could see the pooling of body fluids in his mouth. That's why I wanted somebody by his side at all times. I had watched them do this suction many times, so I just reached for the suction tube. I removed the hygienic cover, and I suctioned. Archer didn't even have the ability to clear his throat or his mouth. I'd realized that yesterday and had begun to try to make sure he had pillows under his head so he was slightly propped up when they had rotated him on his back. Oh, yes, they were still rotating him every two hours. What a ghastly feeling that would be to have your mouth pull up with saliva and gunk while you were lying on your back and not be able to swallow or get rid of it not be able to even move your head to get rid of it and not able to even call out for help. It made me nauseous. It actually made me panicky. I was aware I had my own thoughts of drowning. Yes, it'd be like drowning. There was no way I was going to let that experience happen to Archer again on my watch. Whew. All finished as I put the suction wand back in the plastic covering. I smiled at Archer and asked if he needed anything else. More time with James? I could tell the answer to that question was a resounding yes by the sheer light in his eyes. Oh, I wanted them to have all the time in the world together. I went back out in the hallway. As I did, I had a memory pass over me. I recalled how my mom, when I was a girl, would let me have friends over all the time. And as we got older, my friends especially loved to come over because she'd give us our private time. I mean, sure, she'd come and check on us periodically and she'd ask if she could get us something to eat or she'd bring freshly popped popcorn, Jiffy Pop and Coca-Colas or buttered toast and tea if I was having a slumber party. But she'd give us our space. I am glad she taught me how to do that for my children. Yeah. She was the hostess with the mostess, and my friends loved her. My mom was a gracious person, and as I think about it, 
there's an aspect of giving people space that is the epitome of being gracious, I think. You know? Yes. I think mom's graciousness is part of what shaped me as a transformative mediator, you know? Because I would tell people all the time that even in their very difficult circumstances, I would help to provide a space for them to talk and just be. When you're real, you can figure things out. And I think you also see who you are and who the other person is. Hmm. I think for me as a young girl with my friends, she was just letting us be as we were sort of coming into who we were. Yeah, we were becoming. You know what I mean? I bet you had similar experiences when you were a kid. James did come get me again out in the hallway. I was out there listening again to the audio recording of what he had told me earlier, and I raced into Archer's room as we tried to figure out what it was Archer needed this time. It was a readjustment, and that required staff. But I still just wanted to leave them alone with each other. As I waited back out in the hallway again on James and Archer to have their time together, I asked the nurses when the last x-ray for the day would be as I wanted to be there to take a picture of it. Oh my gosh. Yeah, they were still doing all kinds of things to Archer all day long, taking x-rays of his lungs every four hours. That was just one of the regular things now. I asked if there was anything else scheduled for the night. Because I, I got to tell you, earlier in the morning, I overheard one of the pulmonologists, at least I think it was a pulmonologist, and there were two of them. The nurses had referred to two different ones. I couldn't tell exactly because I was in Archer's room and they were in the hallway. As I looked under the curtain, it was about, you know, six inches up off the floor, but I could tell they were both in scrubs outside Archer's entryway. I was dabbing Archer's forehead with a cool, damp cloth, and I strained to listen. One of them had said to the other something like, if there is not progress in the next... And that's what caught my ear, actually. 
hearing something like, if there's not progress. But what did he say? Did he say if there wasn't progress in the next 48 hours, that they would consider performing something, something acts. It was a long word. I couldn't tell you because I couldn't hear them very well, but it was a really weird long word. I paused, waiting for the doctor to come inside, pull back the curtain and enter our room so I could ask him what that was about. But he never entered and they just passed by. I didn't understand that. How they could talk about Archer, but not talk with us. Okay, where was I? Oh, yes, I'm telling you about last night with James. So I was out in the hallway thinking about what I just told you. And I was aware of this intense feeling I had all over my body to know what else James might be able to recall and tell me about Archer's accident as my head was swirling with unanswered questions. Oh, I realized I had left my phone on Archer's bed. Oh, I hated to interrupt them. But something told me to go in and get it. Has that ever happened to you? Well, as I walked back in to retrieve it, it was perfect timing. You know what I mean? Do you know what synchronicity is? You know, when two things just happen, but they're not causally related? It's what some people call a happy coincidence. But you and I know there are no such things as coincidences, right? God's universe is always helping us along. Well, it was like that. Strange the way it happened, though, because as I walked out of Archer's room holding my phone so the boys would not be bothered by the calls and texts I was getting, who should call me? Literally, at that moment, was James's mom, Patty Schmucker, whom you've already met, remember? And the first words she said to me were, please, don't let James know I'm calling. Isn't that amazing? Now, I didn't really know her that well, but she was calling me, worried about James, wondering if he had made it all right driving up the parkway to Atlantic City. It was a mom-to-mom -mom call. You know the kind. You don't even have to know each other well at all because what you have in common is being moms. As I walked down the hallway away from Archer's room so I could talk to her, I confirmed that, yes, James had made it. And I told her he and Archer were having a lovely visit and that it was continuing even as we talked and that I imagined, yeah, he'd be heading home soon since Archer was alert for only short periods of time. She continued that she was concerned 
about James's driving that he might not know the way home, especially if it got dark. And she told me James was pretty shook up to come see Archer. Hmm. Yes. I told her what a great boy she had, that he had rescued Archer, and we shall never forget that. And I thanked her. And she said, James has not really been himself since the accident. I could hear the worry in her voice. James had seemed okay to me. But you know, as a mom of a number of boys, my experience of boys is that they carry a lot on the inside and don't always show it. I believed her. And my heart ached for sweet James. What it must have been like for him just a few days ago to see his friend, not just struggling in the ocean, but not moving, floating, with his head and neck down and body dangling in the waves. Nothing but the top of his back bobbing in the ocean. Oh, I couldn't imagine. That's how James had described it to me when I just spoke with him. And they were just boys. Archer had just turned 17 two weeks ago. As I listened to Patty's anxiety, the thoughts flashed in my head of what else James had just told me before he went in to see Archer. He had told me that he swam as fast as he could when he saw Archer, that he was wearing flippers, and that he immediately turned Archer over, face up in the waves, and put him in an arm lock to bring him in. He told me he wasn't sure Archer was alive as he swam him in as fast as he could. Can you imagine? James, too just a boy, a young man. I can't imagine what was passing through James's thoughts then and what it must have been like for him. I did have a chance, though, five years later, as part of our look back, to meet up with James Schmucker and talk about this accident for the first time. Here are some excerpts. I was asking James, as a beach lifeguard, if he had ever had a rescue like Archer's and what it was like for him rescuing Archer. Uh, that was the first like rescue like that I've ever made. And um, part of that, uh, just didn't want to think, believe that he was dying. Was your friend? Yeah, close friend. Close friend, yeah. Yeah. That really struck me in the interview all these years later. I had so much compassion for James and what he experienced thinking his close friend might die. I never really knew 
until recently that even then the impact Archer's accident had on him, on others. I mean, I learned that those who were part of the beach rescue knew it was close, whether Archer would make it or not, even then. But how it affected them, the totality of it all, and that they knew Archer. Oh, what it must have been like for James. In the Look Back interview, James and I talked about this very night I'm telling you about now, the hospital visit with Archer. And this is what he had to say. It was nice. It was nice to see him alive. Yeah. Because I remember hearing, I don't know if what was true, what was not, but I remember hearing like going into like cardiac arrest like a few times, like on the way to the hospital, in, like a, in the helicopter, like in and out and stuff. So like I had no, I had no idea like if he was like okay or stable or like how he was, you know. I was just like being told information. I was tired, but like what, you know, what's true, like, you know, yes. like I didn't want to believe any of it really, you know? Yes. I just wanted to think like, now he's fine. Right, we all do, don't we? Yeah. And, and you, you're a questioner. Yeah, so absolutely. Like, yeah, to actually be able to be there and see with your own eyes. Yeah, it yeah, that was. nice was... to see he was alive. Yeah. Nice as a life, so yes, it is, isn't it? Yeah, there's a, there's a real sweetness in life. Mm -hmm. Some of those accidents, people don't they don't come out alive. That's right. Yes, I remember that night in the hospital so vividly. This night, I am now telling you about. I was so glad Patty had called to share with me her worry that James had not been himself. As best I could make of our call, Patty's worry was that James didn't know where he was, having never been to Atlantic City, and was not himself. That was mom talk for, I am scared for my son. Yeah, I get it. Like I had mentioned, Patty and I were not friends. I mean, I really didn't know her, except the couple times she had called me over the summer looking for James to see if James were at our house. I knew the Schmuckers were locals, as we called folks who lived in Cape May, but that's about it. But I got it. Just as I hung up with her, still keeping my eye on Archer's room from down the hall, James poked his head out of Archer's curtain again, looked left and right as I knew he was looking for me. I was down the hall and walked quickly towards the room, but he seemed calm. I asked if they had had a good visit, and he said, yeah, I think Archer is sleeping now. I smiled, not surprising. It's been a big day. I felt relief as my shoulders relaxed. 
Thank you, James. I meant it from the bottom of my heart. I then said, hey, you parked in the garage? Paula is too, and I'm driving her car tonight. Want to walk over there together? Paula and Michael had arrived back, and James and I walked over to Caesar's Casino Garage. As we walked, I asked if he was able to talk with Archer. He said they listened to some music together. We then walked in silence. I still had some concern that I might not find Paula's car since the garage was always so packed at night and she wasn't positive it was level four where she had parked. James and I walked over the skywalk and got in the elevator. I turned to him and asked him which floor he was parked on as I got ready to punch the buttons. He stopped to get his ticket out of his pocket to look. I smiled as he had written down the level and parking space number on it. And he said, level four. All right, I said, I think I'm on level four too. Let's hope. I told him how it was kind of tricky for us because we shared as a family one day pass that I had just actually learned about that the hospital gives to long-term patients if you ask. But they make me call and have to ask for it every day. And someone comes and drops the little pass off at our room sometime during the day. They didn't make it easy, <laughs> but I don't want to complain. It's okay. I was grateful. We didn't have to pay the $25 or $40 a day weekend rate. Well, as it turns out, as James and I roamed level four, hoping to find Paula's car, I learned much later that the only level available to hospital visitors who come in after five on weekends was level four. Had I known then, it would have been a relief. But those were the kinds of details we had to figure out on our own, often by accident or discovered after the fact, usually by asking a lot of questions. And I wondered how many things we never knew, but it sure would have been helpful to know if someone had just told us. Have you ever been in such a situation where it's a new place and you know so little and you're only there for a short time, but you need to get out of it as much as you can, make the most of it? Because it's like, you know, a one-time trip or stop. And if you just had a guide, it would be so helpful. I mean, Disneyland and Six Flags has guides all over the place. Why not have guides for people under stress in new places? You know, I think about this for college campuses and freshmen, and even for new employees at large hospitals or factories or anyone reporting to work for the first time in a huge building or building complex. Heck, I mean, they have a concierge front desk at many hotels. Maybe they could have a concierge for intensive care unit hospital patients, especially if you're going to be there for a while. I know it's not Disneyland or Six Flags, but it's an equally memorable 
if not more memorable experience when you're in an ICU with your loved one, right? A little guidance and tips for the experience sure would help. James and I emerged out of the skywalk into the hot August night into the garage. I spotted Paula's car. All right, relief. I remember saying to James, perfect. I'm going to let Paula know. It was 8.44 p.m. and I texted her. I found the car, level four, row eight on the right. She texted me back. Perfect. Drive safe. I looked up from my phone as James and I stood on level four and I looked right at James. He was standing there sort of waiting for me. Nice kid. I smiled at him. And you know what? Just at that moment, that young man standing with his longish, dark, uncombed, tousled surfer hair, patiently waiting in his unassuming, sort of just hanging out kind of way, I think I saw James, or maybe I saw the James his mother saw, and this feeling passed over me. I got you, Patty. It was a no-brainer, and it was so clear. I'll drive with James. So I said, hey, James, (laughs) you know what? You're headed back to Cape May right now, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, can you do me a favor? Could I hitch a ride with you? There was no hesitation. And he said, sure. And it was sealed. Like a passport agent at the border, stamping your passport with that thunk of a metal ink stamp. Boom. You're in. I was in. It felt really right, even though it was a total change of plan. You know that feeling you get when you just decide and you know it's the right thing? Yeah, it was like that. Now, James may have said, sure, because it's true. It was a little tricky getting in and out of Atlantic City. And he had just graduated from high school and hadn't been to Atlantic City before. And it was very trafficked in the high season. I was amazed he had never been there before, though. Not even for a high school prom or a concert. It's a funny thing about a lot of Cape May locals, at least the ones we know and love and have come to call friends over the years, they will go to exotic places like Costa Rica, the Hawaiian Islands, and Puerto Rico to surf in the winter. But otherwise, they really don't leave the island much. It's funny how there's a big commercial destination that everybody in the world knows about and clamors to go to, And it's right in your own backyard, as they say. 
so close, but you never go because your own real backyard has all that you want and need. I get that. I might not leave either if I lived in Cape May. Maybe it's like that for you too. Your happy place or where you live, if you're lucky. Like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz said, there's no place like home. James and I continued walking around level four. He stopped and took his keys out of his back pocket and pushed the remote power lock button. Lights flashed up ahead on a white SUV. As we got closer, it was a really nice car. It looked brand new. As we got in, sure enough, I noticed it was spanking clean. I was impressed. The inside of cars in the Semt household were not like this. James, I said, this is a really nice car. He told me it was his mom's. <laughs> I laughed and said, oh, she had called me. She wanted to make sure you were okay. She was probably worried about her new car. But I knew that was not it. And so did James. He quietly nodded and said, she insisted I drive her car so I was safe. I just took that in. I remember just letting that moment hang so I could absorb it. I found it to be so tender. He knew his mom was looking out for him and he accepted her offer without resistance. There was something so gracious in that. <laughs> this just graduated from high school kid becoming a young man. There was something about his ability to receive her love, even though expressed in some anxiety, that really moved me. <laughs> and he was being very careful with her car as he drove very slowly out of the garage and very deliberately out of town as we together navigated the way. As we drove out of Atlantic City, headed in the direction of the freeway, I realized I'd better let Billy know of my plan to come home. And now my change of plan, oh, I had to figure it out. I guess I'd need to get picked up. Oh, how was I actually going to get home? I didn't even know where James actually lived. James, I asked, where do you live? He said the name of the town, but I'd never heard of it. And I said, is that around Cape May? He said, it's not too far. It's up near Rio. Oh, I had been to Rio Grande before, as that's where there's a Home Depot. You know, it never crossed my mind to ask James to drive me into Cape May. It just didn't. I guess I kind of thought that's where he was going. But I'm just sort of wired that if it feels like it's going to put somebody out or be a burden or an inconvenience to them, I just don't ask. <laughs> 
That's another thing my mom taught me. But she may not have been fully correct on that one, as I think that's more about pride than inconveniencing someone. And now my impulse is don't bother someone. Sort of, I'll figure it out myself. It's more of a conditioning, I think. Yeah, it was just modeled by my mom. She really was wonderful. But you do figure things out on your own. As James drove, I texted Billy. Hi there. A very emotional meeting of James and Archer. I asked James if I could ride home with him. He thinks I'm in need. Leaving now, can you pick me up in Rio on Route 9? Billy texted me back. Okay. Call me when you are 15 minutes away from Rita's. I am sleeping now. I sent him a thumbs up. I was surprised, but so glad he was sleeping. I was getting worried about his sleep. He always needed more than I did, and he was really just not himself at all, especially on the phone. He's a body type, as they say. And his body needs a good eight or nine hours a night of sleep to function. Oh, I don't know if I told you or not, but Billy and I had agreed that I would be with Archer during the day when most of the activity takes place. And Billy would be with Archer in the night because Billy thought it was quieter then and he could sleep while Archer slept. But the last couple of nights, I know Billy had not slept much. And I know he didn't sleep well in that chair next to Archer's bed. It was virtually impossible for a regular person to sleep anyway with all the buzzers and beeps in the ICU. It really was. Poor Billy. He had been a little bit like the walking dead this morning. But he was sort of edgy. I was worried. I had urged him, please try to sleep during the day, honey even though he said he really just couldn't. Maybe he did. I was sorry I'd bothered him. As James and I took the series of exits to the Garden State Parkway out of Atlantic City, there were a number of quiet moments on our drive. Not surprising. As I think I told you, James is a quiet young man. We talked a little here and there, but drove a lot in silence. I'm used to that with boys. You talk, you listen, you're quiet. I think talking with boys has such a different rhythm than talking with girls or women. As James and I rode together, I wanted James to know how grateful I was to him. So I thanked James again, and I thanked him for sharing what he did with me earlier about the accident. I asked him, James, is there anything else you've thought of since then or since seeing Archer to tell me or anything you want to talk about? There was more silence. But I could tell he was thinking. And I remembered what Patty said, and I didn't want him to be distracted either as he drove. 
But he then said, as he kept his eyes straight ahead on the road, Archer told me he prefers music rather than the TV. <laughs> oh, yeah, I said, that sounds right. You know, all my kids were raised without a television. Did you know that, James? But every nurse who comes into Archer's room automatically just turns it on. Like, it's not even his room, you know? James said, absolutely. And then there was silence again. I then said to James, what are you thinking? And James said, oh, nothing really. I don't know. I probed gently. I was genuinely interested in knowing. Do you notice anything different about yourself since the accident? As he kept his eyes on the road, he said, mm, and there was silence again. I knew James was thinking because I found him to be thoughtful. And then he began. I was amazed at his openness and struck by his self-observation. He told me he felt cautious about going into the ocean. He told me he had had to work his regular shifts and told me he would go into the ocean to cool off on his breaks exactly where Archer had gone in, but that he didn't want to dive anymore. Maybe this was a good thing, I don't know. Archer broke his neck on a sandbar that no one knew was there, where people swim and dive every day. Maybe James's new cautiousness will save him from an injury someday. I don't know. Or maybe it will add to a higher consciousness of being careful. You know? I don't know. What I do know is that I had this wave of sadness that just came over me as I listened to James. I was so swept up by what James was telling me because, well, I knew how much James Schmucker loved to surf and that he was in the ocean every day. I'd say being in the ocean to James was the same as being creative for Archer. And James has said as much. But to be tentative now or unsure about going in that ocean or to have that love dampened or tarnished or sullied, I don't know, what's the word? To have it no longer feel free and accessible. I know, to no longer feel the ease of the joy, the unfettered joy of what you love. That made me very sad. As we rode down the highway in more silence, I was so sad to think that we have this horrible tragedy to deal with for Archer. And then 
here's James, who courageously rescued Archer, who may be scarred as well. How is that possible, Lord? That's just not right. It's cruel, Lord. I felt this wave of sickness and anger. No, I said to myself, don't let that happen to this boy, Lord. Don't. Please protect him from that. He was a hero. I knew from my years of trauma teaching and conflict transformation that one very natural response to trauma is to freeze and also to go numb. I realized James was clearly reporting the qualities of what happens when you have been exposed to a trauma and traumatized. I knew that numbness could include losing a certain zest for what has previously given you so much pleasure. Oh, it's like a personalized definition of apathy. Do you know what I mean? It can look like depression, but it's really related to the experience of trauma. Family members can often spot it in another family member when the rest of the world really might not because it's so personalized. It's so closely tied to what each individual person loves. I also knew from my work in relational systems theory that trauma is not just the one event. It's not what happens to one person who is injured. No, trauma is an experience and it affects many others, even observers. My head was swimming and my thoughts were spilling all over the place. And James continued to drive. Oh, I thought to myself, James, I am so sorry. I had never imagined until this car ride the impact this had on you. And you were the hero, the rescuer. I realized I wanted to remember this, but I didn't have anything to write on. So I asked James, hey, James, can I turn on my audio again? Here's an excerpt of that car ride as James and I revisited his hesitation to go in the ocean. Yeah, it's, it's, probably, it's just taking a little for you to think about going back in the water. If you have. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been surfing. Yeah, but just with a little more precaution. That's just... Well, like, surfing is basically like like archers drawing a buggy. That's surfing to me. Or being in the water. Right. Something like that happens. Kind of takes away. Like, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It's just kind of like... 
I wouldn't say it takes away. It just makes me more more careful and more it's not as, aware it's not of as what free. can happen. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. which makes you a little more careful. Yeah, I, there's, that's an aspect, actually, of trauma. Mm-hmm. It's good, though, that you got it back in the water. But, yeah. like, day, next day or a couple days later. Well, it's only been a so yesterday, whenever it was. It's good that it is you're right it is so so freaky because here you guys go into the water together you're just ahead of him like just a little bit he dove in the same air place that you dove mm-hmm. right well we were probably 50 yards apart 25 no, not 50, 25 yards he was 25 yards to the left of me but, but, but on the same I don't know how that happened. horizontal plane or yeah Thank goodness, actually, that you were out there and that you were swimming swimming away, but then you looked back for your friend, right? Yeah, because, like, we went in together. I was like, oh, I wonder where he is. I have thought so many times since about what that must have been like for James. You're with your friend, carefree, together, taking a break to cool off and then suddenly there's a 50 yard 25 yard distance I mean that's 75 feet that's the length of an Olympic sized swimming pool or almost the length of a full-size professional basketball court between you and your friend and you look over and he's not there and you look beyond and he's that far away with just the back his back bobbing on the water. I can't imagine. I was also insanely needing to understand the scene. Was there anybody else swimming in the water at the time? Uh, no, it was just him and I. Anybody else on the beach? Yes, there was people on the beach. Like on blankets or on towels yeah, and blankets. chairs and stuff? Yes. Danny in the water? No, he was he was just hanging out. Standing next to Davis or something like that. Yeah. I don't even know if he was I think he was on his phone. Because he still didn't he didn't he didn't know what was going on. He didn't see it either. I don't think anybody saw it. I think Davis saw it. I didn't see it. Danny didn't see it. But it was like a slow day, you know what I mean? Not many, not too many people were down. thought about that as James continued driving in silence. It was starting to get dark. I turned to reading the texts that I knew were coming in even as we drove. Every time I put my attention on my phone and all the texts, it was sort of intense, but I cherished them. I didn't want to miss a single one. They were part of what was keeping me going. They did pull me in all different directions, though. But I began to notice that if I were quiet as I read them, something would respond in my body, a physical response to each one. Do you know what I mean? I only began to notice it today because 
of the time I just wanted to take soaking in some of the sweet moments and thanking God. It was in that quiet time when I then looked at my phone for messages that I just noticed of changes going on inside of me. I was drawn to some of the textures, <laughs> like a bird spying a bird bath in spring. I couldn't wait to read them. And others were important too. But it was like my body was sorting out what was important and what would be hard. Isn't that crazy? But I think it was. I needed so much help. And there were so many decisions to make. But it was such a little epiphany to me that I might help myself if I could try to tune in to my own bodily experience more often. You know, praying with gratitude and then listening to my body as a guide to help me? I know that might sound really way out there, but I realized my body had a lot of wisdom to give me if I could just settle it and listen. I was such a head person. Although my mom would tell me as a girl, Louise, you lead with your heart and you better be careful not to trip. I remember her telling me that so clearly and I knew it was true. So I concentrated a lot on being smart, head smart, as I read the text. I was thinking, though, about cultivating a deeper sense of somatic awareness, like body awareness. That was something no one really told me about when I was young. I will pause now for a little digestion break. If you want to pick up and finish the story of this car ride with James now or in a few days or thereafter, please go to episode 23, The Body Knows the Score, part two. I'll be there waiting for you. It's just too much to fit into one episode. So I've put it into two in a dual episode. It is so full of richness what I have learned, too, about the wonders of the body. This trip with James was one of those meant-to-be experiences. Stay tuned. And thank you for your high vibration that you send out to the world and that we create together each time you listen in. See you soon. Sending love. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. For 28 years, Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face -face dialogue as they work through difficult, emotional, and complicated family, divorce, and family business situations. Baltimore Mediation is the preeminent training firm training leaders worldwide in basic and advanced conflict transformation and mediation skills, relational negotiation, 
and the Enneagram of Personality customized for their workplace. Public certificated trainings are held annually in June, October, December, and January. You can learn more at BaltimoreMediation.com. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Please subscribe via email on our site, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.